You've, uh, you've probably heard me talk before about uh, uh, trips that we've taken back to visit uh, Megan's family back in northern Indiana. Um, <clears throat> we've actually got a, a niece getting married this Friday, so we're heading out there again uh, um, for a few days real soon here. But if you've been to northern Indiana before, uh, and especially the Goshen uh, area, you know that there's a large concentration of Amish people who live in that, uh, that part of the country. And, I, and I'm much more used to it now, but, but it was something that was kind of a shock to me in the early years of my relationship with Megan. I just hadn't grown up around that kind of thing, e- even though our own denominational roots go back to the Amish. M- many of you probably know that, but some of us probably don't. Our denomination came out of the Amish church, but even, even in the midst of that, it's, uh, uh, that, that, that uh, is still something that was kind of foreign to me. But you don't have to know very much about the Amish to know that there's certain rules and certain regulations that they are expected to follow. And because of the nature of those rules, they tend to stand out quite a bit in the, in the current context of our world today, right? Horses and buggies stand out in a world full of automobiles. Or uh, muted clothing stands out in a world full of brightly colored clothing. Or or flickering candles in the window stand out in a world full of light bulbs, right? So just the nature of it kind of makes uh, uh, that stand out a bit. And and to be fair, there's different branches within uh, the Amish community. There's kind of more conservative ones and more liberal ones. And and even within uh, the conservative Mennonite groups, there's... You know, there's kind of different branches there. So they, they have some different rules depending on which branch you're in. But I'll never forget, I couldn't remember if I told this story before or not. And if I have, sorry, I'm getting to that point. I'm on repeats. But um, if not, then good, we're in for a new one. But I, 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 won't, I won't forget the time uh, that we went by a, a conservative Mennonite church one time. And, and this was a, a branch that allowed cars so there were cars in the parking lot, but it was, uh, it was plainly obvious that only cars of a certain kind were allowed. You could only drive a black car. They were all black cars in this church parking lot. Uh, but what really stood out to me was in the midst of all of these black cars was one lone bright red one. <laughs> one red car. And I so wish I knew the story behind that. Right? I mean, if you ever thought you stood out at church when you were visiting, I mean, imagine if that was a visitor pulling in in the red car. It could have been that. Or, or maybe it was just a belligerent uncle who was back for the weekend or something, you know, driving. I don't know. I, whatever the case, right? I, when I think about, you know, Christian traditions such as those, I kind of find myself thinking about legalism, right? As I said, you know, some forms of legalism are easy to see, you know, maybe especially as it pertains to the Amish. But just because we didn't arrive here this morning in horse and buggy, and I didn't check, but I don't think anybody did, just because we don't arrive here in in, uh, horse and buggy, it doesn't mean that we're immune from legalistic tendencies. And so for that reason, Paul's words this morning, cautioning against legalism, are worthwhile for us to hear. Right? And while it might be tempting to point our fingers at others like, like Amish or somebody else, uh, we ought to be humble enough to examine ourselves and do so in light of what Paul has to say this morning. So as we begin, we, we've got to start by talking about what legalism isn't. 
what legalism isn't. So as you can see, I left the, um, the cross on the stage here from uh, last week. And if you missed last week, we talked about the work of Christ on our behalf. One of the main things that we receive upon our inclusion in Christ is the forgiveness of our sins. Forgiveness of all of our sins. Uh, in, in verses 13 and 14 of Colossians chapter 2, Paul painted this picture of our record of debt due to sin being nailed to the cross. So in other words, Jesus died on the cross as a result of all of the things that we have listed here. And more, right? We didn't have the room or the time to put every sin up there. So when we talk about legalism, we have to keep in mind that legalism does not pertain to any of this. Legalism doesn't pertain to this, right? It does not pertain to anything that has been nailed to the cross. So, for example, when Paul says, do not become conceited, he's not drifting into legalism. He's warning against sin, when he says, flee from sexual immorality, he, he's, he's not, it's not a matter of legalism. It's, it's a matter of refraining from sin. I mean, we've got to be on the same page there. Legalism does not pertain to sin. Now, granted, not everyone agrees all the time on what things are and aren't sins. So, so what might be viewed as legalistic to one person might be viewed as refraining from sin to another person. So in this, as followers of Jesus, we have to be, we have to be careful to not call things sins that the Bible doesn't call sins. And we also have to be careful not to pursue things that the Bible does call sins. So we need to need to watch ourselves within that. In Christ, we've, we've died to sin. Paul, Paul asks the question in Romans 6, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And, and you know, the response is, by no means. By no means should we continue in sin. He goes on, he says, let not sin reign in your mortal body. So as sons and daughters of God who've been redeemed from our former way of life and forgiven of our past sin, we ought not to continue in sin. There's nothing legalistic about that. Nothing at all. To the contrary, a life without sin is the very life for which we've been saved. And, and we'll really get into that next week. That's going to be our, our focus next week. But regarding this passage this morning, the problem facing the believers in Colossae was not that they were being tempted by sinful pagan practices. I, I imagine there was that temptation, but that's not what Paul addresses here this morning in this passage. What he does address is, is three different forms of legalism, which were, which were being pushed upon the believers in the church. So, so I'd encourage you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. And we're going to pick it up in verse 16. And as we do so, we'll, we'll read here about the first form of legalism that Paul addresses. So Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Paul says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So, so the, first, the first things Paul talks about, the first form of legalism, 
is in regard to religious practices. So eating or, or, or not eating certain foods, drinking or not drinking certain drinks, the observations of uh, festivals, new moon celebrations, the Sabbath. Now, as we'll, as we'll see with, with all three of these forms of legalism that Paul is going to address, uh, the actions or situations themselves are not sinful in nature. That's what we've been saying. They're not sinful in nature. Legalism does not pertain to sin. There will be a caveat when Paul talks about the worship of angels, and we'll get to that shortly, but, but other than that, these things are not sinful, and in fact, they can be very good things. Remember, legalism doesn't pertain to sin, so these can all be good things that Paul's talking about. The problem was that these good things were being treated as requirements for salvation. The believers were being judged or they were being condemned because they weren't adhering to these practices the way that, that others thought they should be. So, and you may have noticed here that the things Paul lists in those first two verses have a distinctly Jewish flavor to them. Um, Sabbath observances are certainly Jewish, um, but, but the other things connect with Jewish laws and customs as well. So, for example, in Leviticus chapter 11, that chapter goes into great detail about clean and unclean foods that, that the people of God were and weren't allowed to eat. Um, Leviticus chapter 23 talks about different feasts that God's people were to observe. Numbers chapter 10, Numbers chapter 28 talks about offerings that were to be given on the first of every month. Um, Numbers chapter 28 talks about offerings that should be made on the Sabbath day. So, so all of these things which Paul listed here had, had details regarding their observances spelled out in the Old Testament. And what it seems is that either, either Jewish believers were requiring these practices from Gentile believers, or the Gnostics that we've been talking about, the Gnostics themselves were trying to syncretize the Jewish and Christian um, their, their faiths and, and work them into their own system of beliefs. So it's probably one of those two, but whatever, it, whatever the case would have been, Paul stated that all of these practices were simply shadows. They were shadows of things that were to come, shadows which pointed to Christ himself. And a shadow by nature is not the same as the thing casting the shadow. It's only a representation, isn't it? I mean, I, I think about uh, um, our kids, our, our regular sidewalk chalk artists at our house. Um, during the warm weather, it seems our driveway is never clear, <laughs> never clean of sidewalk chalk, unless it rains, okay? And uh, it kind of makes me think I should buy stock in Crayola at some point, all the sidewalk chalk we go through. But one of their favorite things to do is trace shadows, you know, have a person stand there, make a fun shape, and then trace it. And when the sun gets low, it's, it's especially fun because the shadow is two or three times as big as, as the person. But anyway, let's, let's say that, let's say someone drove a, a new car to my house and they parked it on my driveway. And, and my kids came out and traced the shadow of that car on the driveway. Now that shadow would look pretty similar to the car itself, wouldn't it? Now imagine I came home and I saw that new car just sitting on my driveway. 
and, and imagine that the person who brought that car proceeds to tell me that they have something that they want to give me free of charge, man, I would probably be getting excited at that point in time. But imagine my great disappointment when informed that the only thing I get to keep is the outline of the shadow on the driveway. Not the car, just, just the outline of that car. Right? I mean, I, I would obviously be disappointed because the, and it's clear why, the shadow is not the same as the thing itself. It might look a lot like it, but it is not the same. The shadow is only the representation of the thing itself. And so you think about Think about the Old Testament. All of those covenantal rules and regulations, they were shadows. They were shadows. The substance which cast those shadows was Christ Jesus. So would you rather have the shadow of Jesus or Jesus himself? Rhetorical question, right? We'd rather have Jesus himself than the shadow of him. I mean, Earlier in, in chapter 2, Paul proclaimed that in Christ, the believers had received Jesus himself. But these false teachers came along and they were trying to force the shadow back on the believers. To return to those practices from the old covenant was, was nothing more than legalism. That's what Paul's pointing out here. Those practices weren't sinful, but they were focusing on the shadow rather than on the substance of Christ. So we ought to ask, what, what type of shadow-focusing practices might we be requiring of ourselves or requiring of others today? What, the, what things might have pointed to Christ at one time but, but are now being treated as the substance themselves? You know, I think about my, uh, my own upbringing. Um, Bible quizzing was something that had a great impact on, uh, on my spiritual development as a kid, as a teenager. But if I turn around and I require that my own children be in quizzing, I, I force that upon them, expecting that that's what good Christians do, I'm crossing into legalism, right? What, what was good in my own life, what was pointing to Christ, can be turned into to legalism. If I expect that, that every person needs to worship in a certain way or, or evangelize in a certain way or treat their body in a certain way in order to show that they're a true believer of Jesus, then I'm crossing into legalism. That's what it is. Spiritual practices can be very good things, but we can't make them requirements for salvation. That's when we've entered into legalism. Those things are meant to point us to Christ, but they are not meant to be a replacement for the substance of Christ. And so that's what Paul talks about here, the, this first form of legalism. The second form that he gets into, uh, what he addresses, has to do with experiences. So first it was practices, now experiences. Look with me at verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together 
through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. So, so as, I, as I kind of alluded to earlier, the worship of angels in verse 18 needs to be treated differently than asceticism or, or visions that Paul talks about. The worship of angels, or, or anything other than God himself, is clearly a sin. I, I mean, we see that in Scripture, there's no question. The, the, the second commandment tells us not to worship anything other than God. Um, uh, in Revelation chapter 19, when an angel gave John a message from God, uh, John began to fall down to worship the angel, and, and uh, the angel immediately and rightly reminded John that it was a fellow servant of God, and it should not be worshipped. So the worship of angels is not a matter of legalism. That, that, that kind of stands out in the list here. That moves back into an area of sin, and we ought to refrain from that. But asceticism and, and visions, however, those are experiences from God that can be good things in our spiritual journey. Um, perhaps the most frequently mentioned form of asceticism in the Bible is fasting. You see that lots of places. Uh, Jesus even presented fasting as, as something that uh, it seems he expected that his followers would do. Um, and as believers through the centuries can attest, there's, there's great spiritual benefit in fasting. It heightens our awareness of our dependence upon God in a way that, that, that few other things can do. But fasting can also be turned into a legalistic requirement. It can be. And the same thing with, with visions from God. You, you can make a whole list of people in the Bible who, who had visions from God. Think uh, Abraham, Jacob, uh, Joseph, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Stephen, Peter, Paul himself, John. Who he met. I mean, the list goes on. People who had visions from God. It can be a wonderful gift that strengthens a person's faith in him. But questioning someone's salvation or their relationship with God because they haven't received a vision is legalism. The false teachers in Colossae were, were telling the believers that they were disqualified if they didn't have the proper experiences. And, and Paul says those teachers, they're just, they're just puffed up in their sensuous, their, their, their fleshly minds. They're, they're walking in legalism. And again, we can ask ourselves today, are, are, there, are there experiences today which we have had that we expect all believers to have? Or are there experiences we haven't had that, that make us question our faith because others have had those experiences? Um, some will teach that if you haven't experienced the Holy Spirit in terms of speaking in tongues or, or prophecy or healing or, or something like that, then you haven't been given the Holy Spirit. That, that, that's, that's experiential legalism. That's what it is. Uh, maybe you've had times where, where you felt unsure about your own salvation because you can't point to or you can't remember that moment when you prayed the prayer and asked Jesus to be your Savior. You know, this was a common thing that, that I saw um, as a youth pastor among students who became Christians as a young child. Right? Because they couldn't remember firsthand that moment when they became a Christian, that they felt compelled to rededicate their lives 
over and over and over again. And there's nothing about making commitments to God, but, but you could just sense that, you know, because they, they couldn't remember that experience, that there was something lacking there, that they needed to, they needed to have that, you know, re- requiring that, that moment of salvation kind of experience is legalism. That's experiential legalism. You know, God can, he does give his people wonderful experiences that, that they're in which their faith is deepened and their worship of, of, of him is strengthened, but to require it, to require a specific type or frequency of experience is nothing but legalism. And Paul talks about it here. Now the third one, um, this one might be the most convicting for us today, if I had to guess, this third one. Paul talks about legalistic disciplines. So look with me at verse 20. Paul writes, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, we've got to say right off the bat, Paul is not anti-discipline. Not in any way. If you go back in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says that, that like an athlete, he does not run aimlessly. Uh, he says he disciplines his body to keep it under control. And he's, he's not talking about physical exercise there. He's, talking to, he's using an analogy to talk about spiritual discipline. So Paul promotes spiritual disciplines. And, and I would agree, I, I personally believe that God can bring great growth in our discipleship journey through the practices of disciplines. The, the, uh, the most recent Fight Club chapter that we just completed we spent time in the book Disciplines of a Godly Man by Kent Hughes. Uh, and, I, and I think every guy in Fight Club was, uh, was challenged by what we read there. But if we're not careful, good things like disciplines can cross the line into legalism. And, and there is a, there's a great quote from that book by Kent Hughes that, that I think highlights the, the difference and the danger. So I want to just read that for you. He says, for many, spiritual discipline means putting oneself back under the law with a series of draconian rules that no one can live up to. But nothing could be further from the truth if you understand what discipline and legalism are. The difference is one of motivation. Legalism is self-centered. Discipline is God-centered. The legalistic heart says, I will do this thing and gain merit with God. The disciplined heart says, I will do this thing because I love God and want to please him. So when we think about what Paul was referencing here, there were regulations such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which, which the false teachers were impressing upon the believers at Colossae. But those things were nothing more than requirements placed upon them in order to prove something to God or to validate something before God. 
if a person chooses to discipline themselves in a certain way and do certain things or don't do certain things out of a love for God, that's well and good. In fact, I would say that's worship. That's what we call worship. But as soon as a list of things, again, things that don't have anything to do with sin, but as soon as a list of things are impressed upon a person as requirements, then it becomes legalism. And, and the Pharisees were notorious for this in the time of Jesus. They had all sorts of human precepts and teachings that they impressed upon people in order to, to keep them in good standing before God. Uh, the problem was that those precepts, those teachings, began to be the end all. It became all about them. It was more about keeping the rules than it was about loving God. And, and that's, that's legalistic discipline. I mean, there are, there are plenty of good things, good disciplines in our lives which can turn into legalism if, if we're not careful. Do I read my Bible out of a love for God or, or am I just checking off a box because that's what I'm supposed to do? Uh, do I pray because I love God or because that's what good Christians are supposed to do? You know, do I share my money, share my talents because I love God or, or because I feel guilty for not doing so? Uh, I, I'll tell you, this can be a struggle as a parent. You know, we talk about uh, dedicating children this morning. Um, uh, I, I feel that struggle, especially as a parent. You know, uh, Megan and I, we want our children to learn the wonderful disciplines of the faith. I, I want them to drink deeply of the truths of the Bible. I want them to have intimate times of prayer with God. I want them to find joy in sharing their faith with others. But I struggle with walking that fine line between encouraging them in those good things and turning them into legalistic requirements. Like, you know, you really, you have to do this. It can be a fine line there. And, and as we get to chapter three next week, Paul's gonna give a whole list of things to put to death and a whole list of things to put on. And if we don't grasp his words regarding legalism first, that list next week becomes very dangerous. It, it just does because we can turn it into these are the things that you have to do in order to be saved, in order to be a good Christian. And so we have to be clear on, on what legalism is. And the reason that legalism is so dangerous is because it doesn't produce the good results that we truly desire. It does not. And, and Paul says it two different ways here. Legalism leaves us stuck where they are. So look with me uh, again at verse 19. Paul says, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a, what? Grows with, grows in light of all of the good things that you've done, in light of all these practices and disciplines and experiences. No, grows with a growth that is from God. A growth that is from God. I mean, we, we rightly desire to see spiritual growth in our lives. and God desires that too, but legalism won't bring it about. The, the spiritual growth only comes from holding fast 
to the head. And, and we know the head is Jesus because Paul told us so in chapter one. He's already established that. Jesus is the head of the body, the head of the church. So the body, we only grow with a growth that is from God. It comes from God. It's not a growth from our legalistic practices or experiences or disciplines. It's a growth that God graciously brings as we hold fast to him. And so we rightly desire spiritual growth, and I think we rightly desire that our our sinful nature be done away with also. And again, God desires that too. But once again, legalism doesn't bring that about. Look at uh, verse 23 one more time. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom, in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The, the desires of our flesh, our, our sinful nature, it's only stopped and it's only put to death in Christ. It's the only way. Two different people can attend the exact same church services for 30 years, for example, but one may be stuck in their sinful nature while the other is given victory over it. And that's because it's not the practice of church attendance that puts our sinful nature to death. It's Jesus Christ himself. You know, two different people can discipline themselves the exact same way, and it can be the same type of situation. One is enslaved and one is free. And again, it's because spiritual disciplines do not put to death our sinful nature. It's Jesus himself that does that. Practices, experiences, disciplines, they can all be good things flowing out of that, but it has to be in Christ. Jesus is the one who saves us, who gives us salvation. Legalism makes the practices or the experiences or the disciplines into the Savior. That's what legalism does. It makes those things the Savior. But that is a Savior that will not save us. It won't. If it would, then what do we need Jesus for? He came for nothing, if if that would work. Jesus is the, the only one, the only one who can save us. Faith in him alone is what leads to salvation and redemption, and that's why Paul spoke out so clearly against these legalistic tendencies. We can't put our faith in them. Our faith can only rightly be placed in Jesus as our Savior. Would you stand with me? Let's, let's come before God and pray, and, and, and as we worship, again, thanking God that he is our Savior and reminding ourselves of that over and over. God, we give you the honor this morning. We recognize that uh, ultimately that we cannot save ourselves. It doesn't matter what practices we perform, what experiences we've had, what disciplines we enact. We cannot save ourselves. And so, God, we come before you and uh, we humble ourselves this morning. We admit that you are the Savior and that we are not. And we're so grateful for that also. Thank you that, that as we are lost in our sin, that you've come to be our Savior. 
we are we are truly blessed and and not just blessed we are we are made new given new life God help us to remember that this morning these are some good things that we've talked about things that uh, that that can point us to you God but ultimately they cannot replace you so help us to keep that in mind today tomorrow the weeks and months ahead as we go out from here that you are our savior and nothing else we thank you God we love you for who you are for what you've done for us we pray these things in your name amen